94th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, and the author of multiple New York Times bestsellers. The music you're listening to is Croissants from the great MC Whiteout. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from sports writing to screenwriting to erotica to self-help to song lyrics to whatever genre I'm thinking of. And today's guest is Wayne Coffey, the former New York Daily News sports scribe and author of the new book, They Said It Couldn't Be Done, The 69 Mets, New York City, and the Most Astounding Season in Baseball History. And while that claim can be debated, I'm going to go with the 86 season. What is beyond debate is Wayne's status as one of the elite sports scribes of the past three or four decades. So today, we talk a lot about book research, digging into a 50-year-old subject and finding new life, and also quite a bit about how to take someone's pain and sorrow and transform it into a remarkable piece of journalism. And if nothing else, Wayne has the best mustache in Yang history. So kick back, grab some cashews, and enjoy two writers slinging Yang. All right, Wayne, first of all, thank you for doing this. I have your new your new book in front of me. They said it couldn't be done. The 69 Mets, New York City, and the most astounding season in baseball history, which makes us both members of a, uh, I don't know if exclusive is the right word, but a relatively small club of people who have written who have chronicled Mets seasons in book forms. You were 15 in 1969. A lot of these guys you're writing about, some of them are dead. Almost all of them are senior citizens of one point or another. Tom Seaver just came out recently suffering from dementia, kind of vanishing from the scene. What are the challenges of writing a book about older people and something that happened so long ago? It's an interesting question. I think, first off, you have a smaller pool of people who you you can talk to them. I, I'm a big believer in reporting all around a topic and, and talking to as many people, casting the net as wide as I possibly can. And, and in this project, Jeff, the, the net just couldn't go all that wide. Oh, there's one person left from the front office, Joe McDonald, who is now 90, and I talked to him and he was great. But I was asking him to, to go back uh, five plus decades. You know, Gil Hodges, the uh, iconic manager of this team, died in uh, an Easter Sunday, 1972. So I wasn't able to talk to him. So the fact that Tommy Agee has passed, you mentioned Tom Seaver suffering from dementia, Bud Harrelson, the star shortstop, has Alzheimer's. So it narrows the pool and it really make, makes every interview you do that much more important because you just you want to get as much fresh material as you possibly can, and you need the players to be able to do that. So you sit down, let's say you sit down with Ed Cranepool, the Mets first baseman. He gives you this great interview, and he tells you a story about that time in Cincinnati and this crazy incident with a bus and blah, 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 blah. Are we allowed in this medium to pretty much trust memories? No, I, I think we do trust. If somebody... Somebody told me an anecdote. I'll give you an example. When when I went down to, and this was absolutely one of my favorite parts of doing the the research on the book, I went to Cleon Jones' hometown, which on the map of Alabama is called Plateau, Alabama, but the locals pretty much know it as Africa Town. It's it's just a few miles upriver from Mobile. And Cleon still lives in the house where he was born. And Africatown was the, the site where the last slave ship ever to come to the United States deposited its illicit cargo from West Africa in 1860. 
And a lot of the descendants from that slave ship still live in Africatown, Alabama. Cleon Jones is basically a tireless advocate for the community. So things like that, Jeff, are, that's what makes book writing and, and, the, and the research process just so fascinating to me. It's about as far from a baseball diamond as you can possibly get. But as iconic as this season was, we all know the ending. We know the Mets won uh, against the mighty Baltimore Orioles in five games, but but it's it's the journey of the players, the people who made it possible that, to me, kind of gives the narrative a push. You see, I always find the trap writing about seasons is you're researching it, you know, like a, you're researching a book about a team, and you yourself, at least I do, I, I get really caught up in the day-to-day. Like, I get... It's almost like reliving it and you get deep into it and you sort of wonder what's going to happen next. And you have to remind yourself that 50 years later, most people probably don't care about game 128 at Chicago. How do you avoid that? How do you avoid not making it? And then, especially when you don't have, uh, you know, as many firsthand sources as maybe you'd want, how do you avoid not making it a, and then against the Cubs and then against the Reds? I mean, that's really the central question and the, and the central creative challenge because you want to bring the season to life, but you're right. You don't want to get bogged down. You're not writing a chapter about a fielder's choice uh, on August 3rd. You've had this through your career. Like I, I get a ton of people, ton of people who say, um, yeah, I really want to write a book. I'm thinking of writing a book. I want to write a book. I'm going to write a book. It's, and sometimes <laughs> I never, I never deter anyone from writing a book. Sometimes I feel like it's like uh, it's like if I went up to an NBA player. Not, I'm not equating myself with an NBA player. I said, yeah, I really want to play in the NBA. Right? They make it sound really easy. Everyone makes it sound really easy. What do you think people are missing? Like, what do you consider the part of writing a book that is the most sort of painful, the most unpleasant, the parts of it that maybe people don't see when they just see, you know, shiny cover and Barnes and Noble signing? It's a it's a daunting process. You know, I've written a lot of books by now. You've written a lot of books. And I don't know what it's like for you, Jeff, but I know when I am sitting down and I'm looking at my blank computer screen and I'm trying to write my first sentence, it's um, it's a pretty terrifying experience, even after all these times that I've been through it. So that to me is is really getting started is is the biggest hurdle for me of all because I, and what's interesting, and this is sort of in some ways is counterintuitive, but for me, Jeff, the, the better the material that I have to work with, the more pressure I put on myself and the more difficult the writing process is. You'd think if you've got all these, just a, a gold mine of stuff that it would become an easier book to write, but I sort of have this semi-sadistic voice in my head that's saying, boy, this is a great story. You better not screw it up. You've been a journalist for a long time. Uh, you joined the New York Daily News in 1985. Uh, you had this long and storied career. Do you report everything then right, or are you writing as you go along? I like to get a good base of the reporting done. Uh, I sort of do them in lockstep. I'm not someone who's just only going to start to write when the reporting is done, because honestly... The reporting is never done. It, it just, it, it I, I kind of run out of time. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty obsessed that way where I just, there's always, always an extra call to make, uh, you know, some other clip to dig up, someone else to track down, whatever, whatever it may be. I, it, it just, it's an unending process for me. So if I didn't, if I waited till all that was done to write, I, I wouldn't have published any books yet. What are your, 
tricks to getting people to open up and talk? Like, what are the devices you've sort of figured over the years are your best sort of weapons in the ongoing battle to get people to open up when maybe they don't want to open up? I, I think it's more for me. It's much more art than science. And um, I was recently at spoke to a journalism class at Penn State University in their College of Communications. It's a wonderful program. And one of the things I said, which I really believe to the core of my being, is that the best interviews are conversations. They don't feel like an interview. They don't feel stiff. They don't feel stilted. They're not they're, they're two people talking the exact same way that you and I are right now. And it, to me, the more that you can make it just two human beings communicating, the much better off you're going to be. And, and the, and the more powerful stuff, the more intensely human stuff you're going to get. Now, sometimes interviews are confrontational and, uh, of course, and you're going to get into things that maybe someone, uh, doesn't want to get into and then it can, turn in a different direction altogether. But for for a book like this, for the most part, I just find that that to just try to make people as comfortable as possible, just try to disarm them and 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 make it just make it like two people talking. And the more that you can do that, I just think you're gonna be way ahead of the game. I imagine you you have a tape recorder with you when you're uh you know a recording device when you're doing this. Yes, I did. I, I didn't. I kind of resisted tape recorders for a long time, but they're really indispensable. My hand doesn't write as fast as it used to, and uh -huh. uh, my handwriting is just absolutely abysmal. So it's always a challenge. And if I'm working a locker room on deadline and I'm scribbling something down and, you know, I go back and look at my notes and I, and I learned early on, if I don't go back and look within five or ten minutes, I'm never going to be able to... Uh, even decipher my own scrawl. So yeah, with with a book for sure, I'm I'm always taping. All right. So like this is the thing. I had this conversation with Susan Orlean a few weeks ago, the writer for the New Yorker, and we she does not use a tape recorder because she feels like you're interviewing someone and they are always consciously aware they're being taped. I always thought the tape recorder is a better thing than notepad because I feel like the notepad out with your hand scribbling is a constant reminder. And I've I don't know. We always say, like, it's a very common thing. Like, we just make it conversational. Try to make it as conversational as possible. I've never heard it stated, and I don't know how to state it exactly. How do you do that? They know they're being recorded. You know you're recording them or writing their words. They know it's going to appear in print. You know it's going to appear in print. Is the goal to have them forget that it's going to appear in print? <laughs> Well, you're right. I mean, the tape recorder and the pad are, are both telltale signs that it is an interview. And, you know, short of, short of destroying the available evidence, I, I think what I just try to do is, is make it as, as unthreatening as possible and just to try to be a, a, a regular person and to, and to go to them. I mean, to me, it's sort of magical in, in, in all aspects of life. You know, not just in writing and putting together books, but when you can go to another person's feelings and, 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 re and reach out and it can be very disarming and it can, it can really help elevate someone's comfort level. I, in the course of doing this book, I, so I, Tommy Agee had uh, passed almost 20 years ago, but his brother, Joe Agee, his older brother was sort of the keeper of the Agee flame, so to say, and was, was there for all of Tommy's greatest moments. And, and Joe Agee was a career upholsterer 
in uh, Whistler, Alabama. And when I went to Joe, you know, he was very gracious. He said, yeah, come on over to my house and I'll, you know, we'll drive around. I'll show you where Tommy and Cleon played. I'll show you the school. And right from the start, I think I started by asking him about upholstery. You know, how did you, how did you get into this? And, you know, what does it take to make a cushion? And just trying to get a sense of, of him and his life and, and just sort of ease into it. You know, there's no substitute, I think, for time and for, Again, for showing genuine interest in, in what the other person is, is going through. This is not magic, Jeff. It's just common sense, really. We ended up having a great visit and Joe was incredibly kind and giving with his time and showed me all these fields where these guys played and told me stories about the past, rough passage that, that Tommy had growing up. Not all that long after Jackie Robinson and Joe had a front row seat for all of that. It all got kicked off because really didn't feel like an interview, even if that, that dang tape recorder was sitting right there. Before we continue with Two Riders Sling and Yang, quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my wife, Catherine, and today we're at a clay studio making pottery. That's a beautiful flower pot. It's not a flower pot. It's an ashtray? Why would it make an ashtray? We don't smoke. Door handle? What? Cat slippers? You're being weird again. All right, I give up. What is it? It's an explosive artistic rendition of the inner beauty of 503 Sports, the best place in the world to get throwback hats, t-shirts, jerseys. It says, with 503 Sports, there is hope, and God is good, and love rules the day. It speaks to the goodness in the world through the prism of a visit to 503-sports.com. Seriously, it looks like a flower pot, like a squishy one. You'll never understand genius. You've co-authored books with three athletes. Uh, You did R.A. Dickey, you did Carly Lloyd, and you did Mariana Rivera. And uh, I've never talked to anyone about this. And I kind of wonder, when you do that, I mean, I know the basic gist. You you hang out with them. You have a tape recorder out and you talk to them. And then you write. Are you trying to write in their voice? Or are you just writing in your voice? I kind of hope it works out okay. You really want to capture their voice to the extent that's possible. You want to, if if you do the job right, I think it should it should sound like, that person. And I think I've done it with varying degrees of, of success. I mean, you want to, ideally, it, it really, you, if you're going to be true to the subject, it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't sound or read like me. So if you read the Mariano Rivera book, The Closer, or Carly Lloyd's book, When Nobody Was Watching, it shouldn't read the same way as they said it couldn't be done. Because if, if it does, then I really haven't done my job effectively. But it, in, in a sense, you're just trying to like crawl into someone else's life and just immerse yourself so totally that you you capture the essence of it. Like uh, I'll give you an example. So with with Carly, Carly Lloyd, who's just as as fierce a competitor and as hard a working professional athlete as I have ever encountered in any sport. I mean, I mean, early on in the taping process with Carly. She just, she just said something like out of the blue. It was almost an offhand comment where she just said, I don't do fake. And when she said that, I said, I got the first line for this book. I don't do fake. And there it was. It just sort of, it just leapt right out at me. And you need, you know, you need to be collaborating with the right people for that to happen. But yeah, in answer to your question, you, you really want it. It's a, it's a very different process. It's not as, not quite as reporting as intensive, but but it's really just trying to almost morph yourself into another person. 
Is it hard, like um, Carly Lloyd, 36 years old, so when you wrote it, she was probably whatever, early 30s. You know, she's kind of a kid who's played a lot of soccer. She played soccer at Rutgers. She played soccer professionally. So she played soccer for the U.S. team. How do you make that interesting? It was actually very easy with Carly. She's an open book about her her emotions, her obstacles, her insecurities. And let's face it, we all have them. We all have our boogeymen. And to me, the power of her story is her just remarkable, unstinting honesty about how she felt in the moment. This is a person who, at 21 years old, was cut from the U.S. national team and told straight out to her face, you are not national team material. You're just not good enough. You've had a nice run, now now go away. And she was ready to quit. And she ends up being uh, the star of the 2015 World Cup, the only American to ever be two-time World Player of the Year, had a career like very, very few others. And this was someone who was told to her face, you, you don't cut it. You're just, you're just not good enough. You're, you're not a good enough player. You're lazy. You're not fit. You're not this. You're not that. She wanted to go right at all of that. And when you have someone who's really willing to make themselves vulnerable that way, it, it's, I mean, that's the, that's the power of the narrative. So then once you have that, then you can weave in the soccer games and not just, not just have the thing read like uh, 80,000 words about, you know, about corner kicks and penalty kicks and, you know, lasers into the upper right corner. I was with Shaquille O'Neal somewhat recently, and he did a book. He wrote an autobiography. I think Shaq talks back when he was with the Lakers, and he wrote it with uh, Mike Wise, formerly of the Washington Post. It was a great, excellent, excellent book. And I said to Shaq, I said, you know, I really liked your autobiography. And he said to me, didn't read it. And uh, (laughs) are you? So you do this. You know, for these guys, obviously, you know, someone goes to Mariano Rivera and said, you can make this amount and we'll match up with a brighter. Are you convinced they read it? And I don't, do you get feedback from them? Do they tell you, oh, I didn't really like this. I don't feel comfortable with that, blah, 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 blah. Or is there sort of a middleman or, or how does that work? Well, sometimes you get a lot of feedback. Uh, with Mariano, I, I did not get a ton because we had an insane time constraints. We had to write that book within seven weeks. Wow. It was insane. Um, it was completely insane. But with other projects, like with R.A. Dickey is um, a, a very well-read, literate guy who just loves writing and loves the, loves the process. He would, I would wake up, there would be 20 pages in my inbox. He said, yeah, I was working on this the other night. I thought, you know, let's, maybe we can find a place for this. And I'm thinking, man, how great is this guy? You were, uh, you were the New York Daily News for 30 years, 1985 to 2015. Daily News recently got rid of pretty much everybody. It's still a newspaper, kind of a newspaper, not the newspaper it was. Your daughter, Alex, is a, is a young journalist. Is this a field worth getting into anymore? Oh, I think it absolutely is. I think, I think it's more important than ever. And I think that, uh, the delivery vehicles are, are changing. And I would just say to someone, just be, be very careful where you're, uh, where you're thinking about uh, setting up shop, but I, I think it's, I think storytelling and hard investigative journalism are are timeless crafts, and again, more important now than ever. So I would never discourage anyone from from doing it. But that said, it's it, there's a lot to be disheartened about, and you just have to, you know, you have to write it out. What happened to the Daily News is just. Uh, 
is a shame. It, it was when I started, I think, Jeff, there were um, there were maybe 80 or 85 people in the sports department. Uh, at last count, now it's under 10. They have gutted the place and sent a, a whole a whole pack of of just luminous talents on their way. And um, I mean, I think that a series of, of management blunders have really have pretty much done it in. And I, honestly, I don't even know how how long it's going to be around, which is really sad because it's was uh, once a great great paper. I feel like there are people who wouldn't understand uh, coming up now. Can you, I mean, when I think of the daily news from when I was, you know, kind of growing up, I graduated high school in 1990. So when I think of the daily news and the sports section, the gazillion writers who came through there, what was it to be at the, a sports writer for the New York daily news during sort of the best days when you were there? Oh gosh, it was, uh, it was a thrill. It, it was, uh, it, it just, you just fed off the uh the energy of the place and the and the and the level of talent i mean you know i remember when i first got there i i remember you know one of my first days i go into the uh i go into the editorial washroom and in the next urinal is jimmy breslin and i'm thinking oh man life's complete now i'm i'm pissing right. next to jimmy breslin you read so many great writers who have come through there and it's just it's inspiring and it just you know it it, it makes you want to it makes you want to do your best and bring your best. And, and you really, it really felt as though you were just, you were making a difference. People of a certain age won't even remember this. Even a person of your age may not remember it, Jeff, but right after world war two, really before the advent of, of television, I know we're going back to the dark ages, but the Sunday circulation of the daily news was 3.7 million. 3.7 3.7 million. And, and That's the crazy. Sunday paper was something you could do bench presses with. It was that big and fat and stuffed with so many ads. And now it feels like a flyer. The reach of it back then as, as the kind of the quintessential paper for the New York working class was unparalleled. Uh, I, I want to ask you one more thing. You sent me, I asked you a couple of stories you wrote and you sent me one. So freaking good, like ridiculously good. It's called Forgotten Hero. And it came out in 2007 in the Daily News. And it was about a former Met outfielder named Stanley Jefferson, who actually played briefly in 86. And uh, Stanley Jefferson wound up becoming a New York City police officer. He's really scarred by his experiences on 9-11 and sunk into a deep, deep, deep depression. Uh, your lead, I'll read it real quick, is four flights up in Co-op City at the end of a hallway in Building 26. The big man sits in a big brown recliner boxed in by four walls and demons and an emptiness that doesn't end. If only it did. If only there were finite measurable, like the outfields of Yankee Stadium and Shea Stadium or the other big league parks he once called home. Then Stanley Jefferson might be able to know exactly what he's dealing with. Then he might be able to go outside, go to work, maybe share the things he still believes he has to give and begin to pick up the shards of a life that sometimes seem broken beyond recognition. Um, so here's this guy. He was a major league ball player. Had an okay career, a little disappointing, but okay career. Then goes on to be a cop, then experiences 9-11 and everything changes in his life. And you're with him in building 26 in the Bronx. It's not a pretty portrait. I'm sure he knew it wasn't going to be a pretty portrait. How did you even get him to sort of talk and open up? I think it was really um, a cathartic experience for him, Jeff. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. I, I had tremendous compassion for him. I remembered 
I remembered his his prep career, and he really was legitimately one of the greatest athletes ever to come out of New York City. One of his teammates swore to me that he saw Stanley hit a a one hopper to first base and beat it out right. from the right hand side of the plate. But with with what he had been through, there was just this. You could feel the pain just pouring out of him, and the, but you could also feel this. This neediness that somehow there was, there was some deep urge he had to, to share, to share about his pain. And I think he, and while I certainly didn't whitewash any of it, I also, the last thing I was, I was going to do would, was beat up on him. I've had, I've had a lot of experience in my own family with, with mental illness, with alcoholism, with drug addiction. With some really heavy duty stuff and, and even mental institutions and, and to see, to just, it was just really easy for me to, to feel the depth of Stanley Jefferson's pain. And, and I think on some level that he, he sensed that, that I would not, I would not sit in judgment with him. And I didn't and I don't, not at all. If anything, I mean, I, to me, he's a heroic figure for, being willing to to be so honest and so vulnerable in describing what he went through you know he was he was working at midtown south on 911 so he wasn't right down at the towers but he was there and he he described to me like watching those buildings fall and then like just about every other cop i mean he was he ended up being assigned work on the on the pile in the coming days and that experience is what is what changed him forever. And it just, to call it post-traumatic stress disorder is a, is a very tidy and I suppose accurate way to describe it. But it, it just went to the, the depth of who he, who he was for him to be willing to, to go right at that. And, and I could almost feel the competitor in him, Jeff, you know, the, the star athlete who was still, you know, he, he somehow, wanted to know who the enemy was and somehow by by opening up about this whole horrific experience was was in some ways um a, a form of therapy for him so for years stanley would not even want to go out of his apartment and he he wanted after we we were in building 26 for a follow-up interview he wanted to meet at a barnes and noble in co-op city right across the way i mean it was a, a one minute drive from his apartment but somehow being able to be out in public felt like it, you know, it was running 10 marathons for him. It was, it was a triumph that he was somehow starting to get himself right. And, and, and to me that to go back to your other question, I mean, you know, whether it's a story written by me or you or anyone else, it, it's, it's gaining some insight into, into the human condition is what what makes this all really important work. There's something a little catnipish for writers about the former professional athlete who's struggling. I don't mean that like in any, I thought this was an amazing story, amazing story and great and well done. It should have been done. I just think there is something irresistible in seeing what happens to these guys 10, 15, 20 years later. You know, we saw them at their athletic heights, at their fame heights, at their financial heights. And it's not right. But there's something about the downfall that is just eternally riveting. 
there's a power to it for sure in a different way. I mean, here to go back to your 86 Mets, one, another person I, I wrote a long piece about, in fact, was in touch with yesterday was Ed Hearn, the backup catcher. Oh, I know Ed well. Yeah. And Ed has ended up, I mean, to me, he's, he's more heroic now than he ever was as a world champion baseball player because he has spent 25 years dealing with just this, um, unspeakable uh, kidney disease known by its abbreviation FSGS, and he's a he's still on the speaking circuit. He's raising money to try to find a cure. He's had three transplants, probably three dozen surgeries. He, when I was with him, he told me he'd taken about probably two hundred thousand pills in his life to try to deal with this illness. And this guy is is getting up every day, still. You know, getting after it. I mean, showing a, a a strength and a and a resolve that is really barely even fathomable. And so I I agree that yeah, there is there is something irresistible about about athletes who have who have fallen who have once once might even how many how many times have we read? I've I've written about it. You probably have about about Dwight Gooden. You know, who oh, yeah. was the epitome of youthful stardom, who had it absolutely all. The, Greatest phenom in the history of the of the New York Met franchise, if if not all of baseball, and it ended up being, you know, in a lot of ways, a pretty uh, a pretty rocky road for Dwight. So, well, there's something weird about us, don't you think? That like, all right, so Dwight Gooden, Darrell Strawberry, Darrell Strawberry, right now is a is a preacher in St. Louis. He's supposedly been clean for the last whatever decade. He's living a very quiet, sort of straightforward life. You almost near never hear about him anymore. Uh, last Christmas, Dwight Gooden was paid $200 to be Santa at a strip club in New York City. It was everywhere. It's almost like we have an insatiable desire to read about the struggles more than, oh, look, now he's a florist. Now he's a minister. Now he's a doctor. Yeah. You know, I, I, I maybe in, in some ways it's, um, I mean, depending on how you felt about someone, if they weren't a hero of yours, if they were, you know, someone who you weren't so sure about, and then you've, you see them falling on hard times. I mean, maybe for some people, there's some kind of glee that they, that they take in that. But, you know, to, to go back to the, to the 69 Mets, I mean, one of the things I, I found is that there are a lot of these guys, like there were, you know, the most unlikely World Series hero. He could have easily been the MVP if it weren't Don Clendenin and was this Al Weiss, the, uh, utility infielder, 155 pound guy who's, you know, was the role player's role player. And, but he was a guy Gil Hodges wanted on the team. And, you know, the guy, the joke was that he'd say hello in spring training and goodbye at the end of the year. And you never heard a word from him the rest of the time. And I spent a lot of time with Al. And he's just, he's just a good soul. He, he was a good soul then. And he's, he's now, his wife has had some, um, some pretty serious health reversals. And now he's caring for her. Uh, in their in their home in Illinois, and he's just he's just a great salt of the earth man who's doing the right thing. And 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 in some ways, I I think you know celebrity just gets so and fame just gets so red hot now now more than ever that I I kind of appreciate the role players in life, the people who were who were not necessarily acclaimed, who were just sort of quietly doing the doing the right thing and and living their lives of sort of understated nobility. And I, I think there's actually a lot more of those than there are the other kind. Hey, so a new addition to this podcast, I'm going to end with a quick diatribe on what I'm working on and why it's melting my brain. We'll call this segment 
from the San Diego Padres, Rupert Jones. From the San Diego Padres, Rupert Jones. So I'm standing outside the Eagle Public Library, a part of the Eagle Valley Library District in Eagle, Colorado. And if you listen to this podcast or you follow my website or whatever, you know I'm working on a book about the Los Angeles Lakers from 1996 to 2004. And if you know the Los Angeles Lakers from 1996 to 2004, you know a part of that involves Kobe Bryant coming to Eagle, Colorado, or the area, and ultimately being charged with rape. So I came out here because you have to report that. And it doesn't mean you're doesn't mean you're going to solve any case. It's an unsolvable case. She says one thing, he said something else. Uh, everything's been, been sort of written about. But there's just a lot of digging you have to do and a lot of research. And you want to make sure you're thorough. And I'm very sort of hyper paranoid about missing things. So I came here to the Eagle Public Library. It's a small brick building, two stories under construction right now. A lot of snow all over the place. It's a nice day. It's about 50 degrees. If you listen closely, you can actually hear the snow melting and forming into raindrops. And here's why I love libraries. And here's why people I know like Marilyn Johnson, like Susan Orlean, really great writers, literally write books about libraries. Because libraries for reporters are amazing. For me in particular, I came here today and the first thing I asked was whether they have microfilm of the local newspapers from back in 2003 and 2004 when they were covering the trial. And uh, the head librarian sent me upstairs to the the head of research. He's a young guy named Matthew, he's probably 30. And he said to me, hold on, you're going to like this. And he comes back out with a binder. And on the front of the binder, it literally says Kobe Bryant rape case, which actually sounds like something it shouldn't. And inside the Kobe Bryant rape case, a big binder, I would say 350 articles photocopied. Uh, So I just spent the next two and a half hours standing at a photocopy uh, machine, copying page after page after page. Uh, It cost me $54. When I told him how much I owed him, he went, whoa. Whoa. And then I paid it up happily. The library will always be a place in my heart. I grew up at the Mailpack Public Library in Mailpack, New York. The librarians there used to hold sports biographies for me. So if if one would come out about Bo Jackson or Ron Guidry or Reggie Jackson, they'd actually call my home and say, Jeff, if you come down here today, we'll save it for you. And I would run down to the library and run back. So my love of libraries is very strong and very profound. And now the Eagle Public Library has a special place in my heart. And that's... From the San Diego Padres, Rupert... Jones. I want to thank today's guest, Wayne Coffey, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Wayne on Twitter at WR underscore coffee and check his website at WayneCoffeeAuthor.com. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. One can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on Apple Podcasts and Google Play and Spotify, and reviews are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.